Hi everyone, I'm your host Max Shannon. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Guillaume Petagas, Managing Director at Oppenheimer & Co, based in London. He is responsible for the firm's fixed income origination in EMEA with a focus on emerging markets. Guillaume has over 15 years experience in the banking industry across a variety of product areas such as project finance, commodity finance, credit analysis, derivative and debt capital markets. Previously, Guillaume held positions at BNP Paribas as an associate, Merrill Lynch as a senior associate and HSBC as head of EMEA origination in the debt capital markets. He is fluent in French, Italian and has basic Spanish skills. Guillaume, thank you so much for joining me today. Can I start off by asking you what your role as MD of Oppenheimer consists of? Absolutely. Look, Max, thank you very much for, for having me. As, as one word of background, I graduated from Exeter University from, from the Business School in Business and Accounting in 2001. Um, so very good to see the alumni network, um, you know, growing in, in this podcast. Um, what, what does a, you know, role of MD at Oppenheimer consist of? So we, we're a relelatively small institution at Oppenheimer on the, let's say, the, the scale of the Belgian bracket investment banks. Here in Europe, there's about 40 of us, there's about 3,000 of us. Um, globally, and most of it is in the US. All MDs at Herbenheimer, their key role is to bring in money. We're here to do transactions, we're here to do business, we're here to make money, um, obviously making money for the institution and for, for ourselves. Um, what is, you know, a role of an MD? We, I run a little team of, of two people here in London. Obviously, I have some colleagues, about five of them in New York who help me out. Uh, and we work as one team. There's no, I'm in London, you're in New York. We not get involved. We work globally. We work together. It's the beauty of this. Um, whereby you get to know everyone and despite COVID you work together and you see each other every day on the, on Zoom calls. The key role is to bring in into source transactions. We're not here to wait for someone else to do the business. We don't have this luxury. The role is to go out in the field and bring in business. So what does that mean? Well, that means calling clients. I am client-facing person. Um, my role is to originate deals. In other words, is to convince issuers, whether they're corporate, whether they're financial institutions, whether they're sovereigns, whether they're small or large, independently of geography or sector, to raise funding through Oppenheimer. We have a debt capital market franchise. Therefore, I originate, I convince the issuer to work with us. We then structure the bond and we have a sales force whose role is to sell the bond um, day in and day out. The idea, obviously, is never to compete or is not at this stage to compete with the bulge bracket banks. We are small and therefore we are a niche player. It doesn't mean we do less. It means what we do is of better quality, is more targeted, is effectively it's a tailored solution. There's no... Uh, you know, uh, we call it boilerplate proposal. It's very much bring us something that suits our needs and we'll make sure that what we offer suits your needs. So my role is to convince issuers that um, they should be working with us, convince them that we have the capability of delivering a tailored deal. And obviously that we would do a better job than the Belgian bracket bank will be, they'll be lost into the myth of the larger institutions. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that uh, great overview. Can you give a quick definition of EM debt capital markets, please? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the, the emerging market teams, you know, across the street and, and globally 
have always been independent from from the other teams. In other words, if you look at, at let's say, Western Europe and the US, you'll have teams that cover corporates, you'll have teams that cover financial institutions, and you have teams that cover sovereigns or, or quasi-sovereigns. Emerging markets is, is a class of its own, different kind of client base and generally speaking, different kind of people that look at it and that, that work in it. Um, we you have three three let's say, emerging market uh, bases. You have CEMIA, which is Central Eastern Europe, Middle East and Africa, which is headquartered generally out of London, which are head for Empanaima. You've got Asia, ex-Japan, obviously, and you have uh, LATAM, which is Latin America, generally headquartered out of, out of New York. The, the definition, I think, is generally speaking geographic. We don't have a definition of, let's say, GDP per head or rating. Um, it doesn't make sense. Um, but it's generally a, a geographical sort of split. So for CEMIA, it's Central Europe. So effectively, you start the likes of Poland, the Baltics, Poland, etc., going down to um, the Balkans and east of that, including Russia and then Middle East and, and, and Africa. So that's a little bit how we define emerging markets. Um, obviously, there's room for interpretation depending on which kind of which institution you work for. But generally speaking, the concept is well agreed that CEMIA out of EMEA is, is an emerging market um, coverage region. Okay, interesting. You mentioned that you don't um, use uh, GDP per head uh, as a measure. Um, can you give further uh, an overview of characteristics of emerging markets? Yeah. So, inter- interesting question. We don't we don't look at the sort of you know population structure, economic growth, uh, but market volatility is, is an interesting one. How do you define the characteristics of emerging market? I think one is economic, um, for sure. Two is is social and three is, is cultural. Um, so if you look at the economic, you know, if you take non-OECD countries, generally they're emerging market. Um, there are countries that have high growth. If you look at growth in the UK, in Germany or France, in general terms, ex-COVID, you're looking 1%, you know, one point, maybe one and a half point. If you take emerging markets, you're talking five, six, seven, eight, et cetera, depending on where you go, whether it's India, China, or some, some African countries. So the economic growth is clearly very different in these countries than we have in, in Europe. So that, that's one very much, you know, driven by how much more the economy has, has to go. Um, second, social and, and, and third, I, th- I think cultural. Social, because the, the social element of emerging market is, is very different. You have a population that is, for the vast majority, relatively poor, and with an elite at the top, which is very thin. And like Europe or the US, that has a large middle class that is well-educated, emerging markets do not yet benefit from that. So this is a, a second way of doing it. You'll see that when you deal with clients in the emerging market, uh, and slowly, slowly, it's evolving towards a European model with a middle class. But you have the people at the top that were educated in top universities, generally Western universities. Um, and then you have, let's say, the more of the, the working class. So you really have these two layers instead of the three layers that we would look at. Um, the, the three, the third point is, is cultural. The way of doing business across emerging markets is very different um, to Europe and very different within each emerging market. If you deal with a, a UK company or UK client or, or, or a Swedish one, generally speaking, business is business. You know what you want. You know what you're there for. You're not here to make friends. You're here to deliver a product. That's what you're hiring 
a company for. In emerging markets, the lines and the cultural lines and the, are a lot more blur. In other words, yes, you're here to deliver a product, but the client will want culturally to be closer to you and for you to act as an advisor and not simply as, as a businessman. So culturally speaking, doing business in Yemen is a lot more fun. If you deal with, with Turkish clients, for example, they are very different to clients in the Czech Republic who have nothing to do with clients out of South Africa or the Middle East. Very different in each of the three, in each location, by the nature of who they are and how they interact in the country. When you go to Turkey, for example, a good meeting will have, they'll offer you some tea, they'll sit you down and say, you know, we've been dealing with you for five years, how's the family? And it's not a question to be polite where, you know, the guy doesn't care about your answer. The answer is really, how is it? You know, I've seen a picture that you sent me last time when you went on holiday. How are things are doing very well? You close the, you close the meeting, you have dinner with the boss first. It's part of the relationship. And it's not something you used to see, for example, when you deal with German clients. The meetings finishes at four or four. Thank you very much. You move out, you, you're done. If you go to um, the Middle East, again, a very social aspect to it. You go to Central Europe, much closer to a Scandinavian model a lot, colder in the approach. It doesn't mean not professional. It means that we're here to do business. If it goes well, I'm happy to go for dinner. But no way do I really care about how you're doing. So depending on where you are and which country you're looking at or continent to some extent, culturally very, very different, but a lot more fun. And this is what really defines emerging market. You need to read the people you're dealing with you need to understand how they're, they're interacting with each other. You need to understand the, the cultural mix, which in Europe, yes, Italy is different to, to Scotland, but generally speaking, business is business and things are, are quite up. So this is a little bit the overview of emerging market. It's, it's not, you know, it's a summary, obviously, but I think it, it defines well the three sort of layers um, in the EM space. Thank you. That was incredibly in-depth. Um, that was amazing. I want to move on to emerging market debt supply and demand. What are the biggest drivers of emerging market debt supply? It's a good question. I think the, the, the biggest drive of emerging market debt is clearly investment. So if you take the three, the three issue bases, so the sovereigns, the, the, the banks and the, and the corporates, on, on the sovereign side, clearly governments borrow ideally to, re to, uh, to invest. It's, it's infrastructure. We're seeing it now in the US. There's clearly borrowing to repay debt, but generally the idea is, is, um, is development. And um, if you look at the past you know, 18 months or so, a number of emerging markets um, and countries that we cover have borrowed enormously. The likes of, of Israel, for example, um, which falls within the emerging market, even though a number of criteria are defined are not exactly there, but falls under emerging market. The country used to borrow internationally two to three billion dollars a year. Last year, I believe they borrowed about twenty. Why? Because of COVID, and why? Because of COVID. No, because of the different schemes that we put in place by the government. And in order to help the country grow, the government has to do its fair share of work, which is borrowing. So clearly, governments borrow to help, whether it's a fellow scheme, whether it's an infrastructure, but the idea is clearly, is clearly gross. The banks borrow as a follow-on from the above. The banks are provided the blood to the economy. No banks, no funding, no funding, no gross, whether it's your mortgage or whether it's you know, a company borrowing to build a new, a new plant. So therefore the banks borrow 
um, clearly to as a, as a you know as a uh, let's say the backbone of the economy allow it. Take the example of Turkey. The Turkish banks borrow have borrowed enormously in the recent past up until COVID in dollar terms because they needed the, to lend on dollars for growth. So a lot of growth was infrastructure, uh, which is you know which is proper and and, and solid. Um, they've slowed down now. Why? Simply because there's not much demand. There's less infrastructure project, etc. COVID having had an impact. And corporates are the same, but it's capex. You borrow to capex. Capex is a new plant. Capex is a refurbishment of existing plants, etc. So from that point of view, I think the biggest growth is clearly, um, you know, investments and in, and in, in development. Um, and I don't. I don't think there's any other element that is as as big as as growth in terms of of EM, um, you know, debt supply. The second one, but I think is 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 well a layer above, a layer below, so the least important is refinancing. Obviously, you you borrow in day one, you either repay on year two, or you borrow again to to just let's say extend your debt maturities. So depending on the sector, depending on the emerging market actually emerging or not, a number of companies will not be able to repay, you know, to just have structural leverage and therefore they, keep, they end up refinancing every year, which from a business perspective is great because I do bonds and therefore if you don't repay, but want to do one more, it's a client for, for myself and, and for Oppenheimer. So we, we're happy about it. But generally speaking, there's an element of, you know, refinancing, which is I think the second driver of, of, uh, of the debt supply. Okay, and on to debt demand. Uh, what are the biggest drivers of debt demand? Um, yield. You know, you, you're you're in an environment today where euro rates are at zero, sterling rates are close to zero, and dollar rates are as low as they've ever been. If you're an investor and you've got trillions of cash that you're sitting on, you want return. Uh, what are you going to buy? Obviously, low rates. This currently is no inflation. What are you going to do? You could buy European AA. You're going to get, you know, very, very low spreads, sometimes even negative spreads. If, you, if you're in the euro space, you even actually lose money, but you lose less than if you were not buying that bond. So what do you do? You want returns? You're going to emerging market. Why? Because a Turkish bank will pay 5%. A South African corporates will pay 4 An African sovereign will pay 8 so clearly a different asset base, a different asset class, different risk. So no fund will put all of its money in there except for you know, specialized EM funds. But it's a way to get money. So the driver of, e, of EM demand is clearly uh, rates environment. And the lower the rates for longer, the better for EM uh, and the better for, uh, for uh, my franchise. Sure. Now, as a proportion of assets under management um, in, in the debt capital markets, uh, what, how much of that includes sovereign and corporate debt? I think if you if you if you take a a you know an emerging market let's say portfolio of hundred million dollars and EM only, I think the fifty percent is going to be sovereign, and the rest is going to be split 50-50 between corporates and and financial institutions. Um, that's the way I would I would simply summarize it. Why? Because Countries issue more than, than corporates and FI by definition of being larger uh, because a lot more um, investors play sovereigns. It's easier to understand a country than it is a corporate. Uh, it's a different risk profile as well. 
Of course. Now, narrowing down more slightly, and as a proportion of corporate debt, um, how much of that comes from the non-financial sector and why? Um, that's very, it very much depends on the countries. Um, there's no, there's no, let's say, EM rule. And why does it depend on country? Because depending on where you are, the regulator and the, the central bank that regulates the local market will allow or not, will incentivize or not the funding of local institutions into the, for, into the, the, the hard currency market. So, so why, why control it? Simply as a matter of risk. Take, take South Africa. The, the South African Reserve Bank has recently allowed um, South African banks to borrow in dollars. Why? Because borrowing in dollars was needed for growth. The sizes that the debt market in dollars offer is much bigger than when it offers locally in RAND, especially in, in one single transaction. But there's a risk. There's an FX risk. There's a risk that, you know, paying back dollars if the RAND devalues and we know the RAND goes up and down, there's a risk here. Same in Turkey, same in a number of emerging markets. So there's a there's an importance of controlling this. Um, so that that's one the regulator playing a big role in allowing and not allowing the banks to borrow and not borrow. Um, second, it's the depths of the um, domestic market. If you're a corporate or bank, borrowing locally in local currency is generally cheaper, faster, and you are better known credit. Why? Because who knows better a Turkish corporate than a Turkish fund? By definition, it's your home market. You know it better. That's 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 a given. I think. Um, so from that point of view. Um, it's generally cheaper. Now, now, not all EM have a domestic investor base and have the ability to do domestic deals. Turkey has one, but it's small. South Africa has one, which is actually larger. And if you take the case of South Africa, the corporates, most corporates borrow locally. So this falls into local currency. It is not exactly our classic bread and butter. We do dollars and euros. That's, you know, that's what we do. Even though we can do everything, the, the demand is very different for local currency funds. Um, so if you take the case of South Africa, corporates borrow essentially in rand and a few in dollars. Banks a lot in rand and quite a bit more in dollars. So there's a, there's a balance between the two. There's the regulators, there's the size of the domestic um, investor base that drives or not. But generally, you know, as I said, as a rule of thumb, I would say across all the end, you know, maybe two thirds financial institution, one third corporate, 50-50, depends it, but that actually gives you a good, a good idea of what's, uh, what's happening. Okay. Um, now, Jamie, I want to move on from uh, EM debt demand and uh, supply to a more general standpoint. And could you tell uh, our listeners if ESG is being adopted into EM debt capital markets and how so? Look, ESG has become the, 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 the catch three letters that everybody uses, um, whether it's DCM, whether you're emerging market investment grade, whether you do equities, ESG is everywhere. And, you know, whether it pops up in your LinkedIn, it pops up everywhere, it says ESG. So the answer is absolutely yes. Um, with, um, you know, with a big focus, clearly the E in the environmental part is the easiest of the three and is the one we see the most. Why? Because to some extent it's the most tangible, right? You say, what do you use the money for? Um, uh, solar farm, right? Electricity or a wind farm. It's easy. It's concrete. 
It turns, it's simple, people like it. Social is a bit more difficult. What are you going to do with the bond? Help poor people. Okay, we need to define it. What do you mean? How does it work? It requires a lot more thinking behind it. It's it's driven mostly at the banks and not the corporates because they're the ones driving it. And G for the governance is the least tangible of all three. Doesn't mean it's not needed to the country, but it's more difficult to get good governance, especially into EM. So, you know, how do you... If it's your business, why can't I decide what I do? Well, you need to have a board. You need to have a governance. You can't just decide what you think is best. You need, you know, balance of powers, a pros and cons. So governance is the, is the most difficult one, especially in the end. Uh, social is coming and the environment is clearly everywhere, but it's on everyone's mind. And I think it's not just on the issuer side, but on the investor side. And ESG has been driven which is important, by the buy side. In other words, you have your money in, in a pension. You want your pension to go into green green investments. You don't want your clients to buy, your, you know, your fund to buy coal. You tick the box. And I had a client that, I took that, has, that has a number of nuclear um, power plants, and we took them to on a roadshow that was about, say, five years ago at the beginning of ESG. And we told him, look, you need to focus on, on ESG and green. You do nuclear. People do not like it, especially in the part of the world where you're going. Brush the softy, guys. We've got real matters here. Look, we, we're just highlighting it. Bear in mind, we sat down in the first meeting in Germany. The client looked at the document and said, we've looked through your 20 pages. There's nothing on ESG and green here. Then the client said, look, don't ask us. We told you. So it's been driven by investors. And now it can't be ignored. Um, and it's at the forefront of every question and every transaction we do. Okay. Um, and my last question for you, Guillaume, is that when you're looking at bonds and loans, um, how much of that is a proportion of green bonds specifically? It's, it's, a good, it's a good question. I don't have the data to hand, but if I'm not mistaken, I've read somewhere about, about a third or 20 or 25% of deals done in the past since the beginning of the year had an ESG element to it. So it doesn't mean it's in terms of volume, but at least in terms of number of issuances. Okay. Out of Europe, I think most of our clients want to do or have done ESG. We have a number of transactions that we are we are working on and we've addressed the ESG angle. It's 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 something everybody has and I think it's it's a positive. Um how do you incorporate ESG into a bond? Is it through the covenants is it literally through the structure of the bond itself how do you go about that there's two there's two things one is um making sure that the client understands and documents why this is esg or their esg policy and two is obtaining a third party confirm this so let's say you're a, you are you know a, a bank and you want to do, um, or let's, let's take a corporate, it's um, it's easier. A corporate wants to do wind farm. The guys do coal and they want to have a green angle. They say, we're going to pump 100 million euros into a wind farm. Great. There's wind farm considered green. Yes. Is it right or wrong? We don't know, but it's considered green. Yes. So in the bond prospectus, you're going to have use of proceeds, you know, uh, build a wind farm. Great. Then you're going to have to detail this. It's not just, yeah, we'll build a wind farm, don't worry. You need to have details of the technology used, when, how, et cetera. But clearly, the issuer, and an issuer can tell you whatever they want, right? They'll say, we'll do a green farm. But to what extent that this makes this a green bond, it needs to be qualified and, and stamped by a third party. So you have institutions who are relatively new because of the new nature of ESG, 
whose role is to work with the issuer, assess the issuer's ESG policy, assess the project that they have in mind, and confirm and give what we call a third-party opinion, which confirms that the bond is going to be green or social or whichever. So when you speak to an investor, not only does the issuer say, look, we want to do this, and it's a green bond, we say, we've got a third-party opinion from this company who's reputable saying that we're going to do it. So there's a mix of the two here. It's not just the issuer, because it would be too easy. Yeah, don't worry about it. We'll do it. But it's also the company that has, that has you know, you, you pay to review your, your policies, and we'll give you this, uh, this confirmation.